Want to learn how transformative storytelling intersects with Southern food? Join the SFA at our Winter Symposium in Birmingham on February 24th. Listen to CNN's Moni Basu explain how narratives can affect change. Learn about radical hospitality from Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Roz Bentley. Hear Clay Risen and Vaughn Weaver discuss whiskey and credit. To see a full schedule of events and purchase tickets, visit southernfoodways.org. While you're there, consider making a donation. Donations support all SFA work, including this podcast. Austin is the capital of Texas and home to the University of Texas. Fabled for its countercultural vibe and verve, Austin boasts a live music scene that rivals the best of Nashville. The Austin sound is wildly varied. It's eclectic and electric, from alt-country and blues to polka and punk, from Janis Joplin to the Meat Puppets, Austin confounds and sometimes reinforces stereotypes about Texas and about small-town college creativity. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Many locals locate the roots of today's vibrant scene in a single Austin music hall with a ramshackle kitchen. To tell that story, we hand over the gravy mic to Ryan Katz. Today, he reports on the interplay of food and music in Austin, on the birth of that city's signal music scene, and on the Dillo nachos and chicken fried steak that fed it. On any night of the week, you can hop into a bar in Austin and hear really amazing live music. Like recently, I tried this experiment. I walked into a random bar not knowing who was playing there or anything about them, and this is what I got. Pretty good, right? There's country music, sure, but also blues, punk, hip-hop. And to really understand Austin's music scene, you have to go back to a place called the Armadillo World Headquarters, a temple of live music, cold beer, and nachos. This is a song called Song of Peace by Shiva's Headband. Shiva's Headband is a psychedelic rock band that started in Austin in the 1960s. Okay, DJ, cut that out. Now I'm going to play you a different song. That was Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother, this version by Jerry Jeff Walker. Those two songs sound pretty different. Well, in 1970s Austin, those two types of music started mixing to become one. The way that people talk about progressive country, also called redneck rock or cosmic cowboy, they talked about it as the quote-unquote hippies and the quote-unquote rednecks coming together. This is Jason Mellard, a music history professor at Texas State University. Mellard says that in the 60s, there were these two supposedly warring tribes in Texas. Where hippie designating, you know, the 60s youth counterculture, um, long hair on men, peasant blouses on women, this more casual attitude towards um, placing yourself in the world. 
whereas quote unquote redneck was the white working class often stereotyped as rural though not always rural uh, but seen as sort of hidebound and rigid in terms of social mores which is probably the biggest difference between them and the hippies of course, that's not to say that one was better than the other, but there definitely was no love lost between the two groups. Or so says longtime Austin hippie Bruce Walensic. Oh, we'd all go to these hootenannies together and sing about love and peace and justice and all this kind of stuff and do kumbaya. And then on the way out, all the kids with the cowboy hats would turn around and punch all the long hairs in the face. <laughs> that was Austin in 64, 65. It was not your tolerant, accepting place. But in 1970, that all changed. A man named Eddie Wilson was the manager of Shiva's headband, the psychedelic band you heard earlier. Eddie bought a cavernous warehouse just south of the river with the idea of converting it into a music venue. He asked a bunch of friends to pitch in, so they cleaned it up, built a stage, and named it the Armadillo World Headquarters. The Armadillo World Headquarters is particularly surprising in terms of its scale and its ambition, and they opened this giant countercultural hall that they saw not only as a it wasn't just a music venue or a music business, but in that countercultural way, they framed it as a community arts laboratory. We have a live music concert stage. We have a beer garden stage. Bruce Walensic was the kitchen manager at the Armadillo. We have a bakery. We have a catering service. Daycare, we had a library, we had a laundry, we had basically, we had an advertising agency in-house. The Armadillo World Headquarters, or as it became known, the Dillo, started booking different kinds of acts, from gospel to Tejano to rock and roll. But the one who would go on to change it forever was someone you've probably heard of before. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Willie Nelson. And there was a Willie Nelson first concert at the Armadillo. 72, perhaps? And what happened was... The hippies, as they normally did at a concert back then, would light up these joints and pass them. And the rednecks took a hit and passed them. As the story goes, it was at this Willie Nelson concert that the two groups set aside their differences. Willie Nelson is best seen as a kind of catalyst that came at a very important time. And he would say the same thing. You know, he's on record as saying, you know, that he didn't, he didn't lead any of this. He just saw, like, a crowd of people going in a direction, and he, he got out front. Willie Nelson had just returned to Texas from Nashville, and he started performing regularly at the Armadillo World headquarters. To hear his band in that moment, uh, they are borrowing from sort of the improvisational uh, rock sensibilities, uh, but is also playing country standards. Hippies liked rock, cowboys liked country. But when the music melded together, both groups found they liked the new sound. Of course, it's not just the symbolism of like, you know, what he meant as a country musician and a successful singer-songwriter who brought with him 
that more traditional country crowd and the kind of hippie redneck coming together. Um, it's also just his sheer persona and his talent. So country fans who were used to seeing Willie and others in dance halls across Texas suddenly found themselves in a hippie garden of Eden. Mellard says in reality, the division between hippies and rednecks probably wasn't actually that great to begin with. There is, like I said, often read a class divide of middle class and working class of, you know, urban and rural. But in truth, when you're looking into this, you know, those lines are much blurrier. And I think the larger truth of this, the hippies and the rednecks coming together, is also the ways in which the counterculture came to influence more and more of mainstream and traditional Texan culture as it did all across the country in the 70s. And that counterculture met capitalism at the Dillo. We were the next continuation of the revolution of how do you create sustainable business practices based on the hippie ideal. When Bruce Walensic first started working at the Dillo, he says the staff championed the kumbaya rhetoric, but it was a lot harder in practice. There was all this infighting on how to run the place. But slowly, that started to change. Bruce says the main thing that brought people together was the food in the armadillo kitchen. It's kind of like the soul of the place. It was the heart of the place. Bruce and two other guys started to work together to organize the kitchen. And it caught on. It really started on the concession counter. Three of us working there said, let's start a plot to turn this strife into a sense of we. And boy, did we. The staff worked together more, and in turn, that encouraged customers of a variety of backgrounds to come to the Armadillo and catch a show together. You grow up in a world of us and them, and that's what you know is normal. Only when you're exposed repeatedly to a world of we can do anything we believe in can that happen. And it showed in the food. People took a lot of care in that food and preparing it and making it work. There it is. Here is an armadillo menu. This is Leah Meckling. She did a variety of gigs at the armadillo, including the catering crew. So there's a vegetable plate, which is a choice of three vegetables with a roll and butter for $1.25. The most famous thing to come out of the kitchen was the armadillo nachos. And those were made using a... A single round tortilla shell with your shamir of refried beans, cheese, and a single jalapeno on top. And they were three for a dollar. Leah clearly looks back on the Dillo as this communal effort, but she still had to fight for her place. Looking back even, and during that time, we felt like we were working with really enlightened men who... um, gave us some credence, but honestly, they were pretty misogynistic because it was thought that, oh, we girls, we couldn't work that main floor bar together. There had to be a man. And we had a couple of guys who were really, really enamored of their beer flavor. One like Lone Star, one like Pearl, and they could extol their virtues till the cows come home. They could tell it in any blind tasting. I had the opportunity one night to work the main floor bar with these two guys. 
After a while, it got really irritating to hear them wax on. So we switched the lines. So they would keep hooking up the beer, but it was flowing into each other's draft outlet. And we let the guys drink that beer all night long. And once in a while, I would ask, how's it tasting tonight? Oh, really crisp and wonderful. So I waited till the end of the night, and then I told everyone what I did. And it was a lot of fun to see their discomfort and also realizing maybe they didn't know their beer so well after all. (laughs) A little bit of revenge for the massage. That's right. You get it where you can. big responsibility of the Dillo Kitchen was to feed the bands that played there. So uh, for the bands we liked, including like Frank Zappa, we would give them big to-go boxes at the end of the night. So, you know, they could have what we called real food to eat between Austin and their next gig. And they really appreciated that. And we just really tried to treat the musicians with respect and care. Leah says everyone in the kitchen was important, not just the cooks. Uh, The dishwasher was a very important person at the club, and not just for their dishwashing abilities, but they were looked to for opinions about bands to book. Particularly Bill Berry prided himself on listening to new music. Back then, you had to really go out into the record stores and look at what was being sent there to be listened to. So when our bookers would be contacting the production staff who did that and there was someone they really weren't sure of and not familiar, they would come back and talk to Bill about what he thought. And ultimately that is why the talking heads were initially booked into the club because none of us knew who they were, but Bill did. Kitchen manager Bruce Walensic has a memory of one time when he's in the Dillo's office. The phone rings. It's Jerry Garcia. Man, I just got to get some shrimp enchiladas. When's your next open date where we can come and eat? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But it was the spirit of people working together. We bound into a family. And how that family became contagious and it spread. And it started including the bands. We treated you like family not just because you were a big rock and roll star, but because you were in our place and you were a part of our we. Came right out of the kitchen. According to Professor Jason Mellard, the kitchen was a major reason they were able to attract so many great acts in the first place. The Army World Headquarters became somewhat famous for its kitchen, not just among its patrons, but actually among traveling musicians as well. They would often come with sort of requests or sometimes would actually book uh, their dates the armadillo because of the kitchen. I guess you'd call it good hippie home cooking. Mellard says most artists weren't used to getting well-fed on the road. And especially those artists, you know, who weren't big enough yet to put these really crazy riders in their contracts. You know, if they got fed, it was like a hot dog. It's the notion of hospitality. And so that was providing them with a meal that was something more substantive than fast food and to ask ahead to what their preferences were and what they would like. Those who worked in the Armadillo kitchen made a real effort to, for, you know, a night or for two nights to make artists feel like they had a home. 
Food put the Dillo on the music map, but the business end wasn't sustainable. The Dillo closed on the last day of 1980, a decade after it first opened. The raucous final show paid tribute to a venue that was and remains perhaps the most unique Austin's ever seen. Everyone who loved the armadillo, I want you to give me a cheer. This is Commander Cody, a regular at the Dillo, on that yeah, night. A lot of, a good time, a lot of fine memories here. Mine include shrimp enchiladas with nachos on the side. After the break, we'll hear from Armadillo World Headquarters founder Eddie Wilson and explore its legacy in Austin today. Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned business in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, has been making cast iron cookware since 1896. Lodge Cast Iron Camp Dutch Ovens are the first choice for campers preparing meals over a fire. Their skillets and griddles are perfect for searing steaks and roasting vegetables at home. And professional chefs from Atlanta to Los Angeles stock their kitchens with Lodge seasoned steel skillets and griddles. No matter what or where you cook, Lodge makes pots, pans, even griddles, just for you. For over 100 years of meals and memories, and for Lodge Cast Iron's support of this podcast, we say thanks. Armadillo World Headquarters in Austin, Texas, fused two seemingly opposed factions in the 1970s, self-proclaimed hippies and gimme-cap good old boys. For the story of what they cooked up together, we return to Ryan Katz. In talking to people about the Armadillo World Headquarters, I kept hearing about the guy who started it, Eddie Wilson. Yeah. All right. So I went to meet him at the restaurant he owns, Threadgills. I've been real lucky. I love it here. We sit down in the Threadgills kitchen, the place used to be a gas station on the northern edge of town. Owner Kenneth Threadgill was a yodeler and loved country music. So Threadgill invited friends to sing at his place on Wednesday nights and became something of a surrogate father for Eddie and others, including Janis Joplin. So so what did they serve at, uh, what did Kenneth Threadgill serve at his original service station? Stale crackers and rat cheese. Kenneth was not known for food. Uh, which has kind of made it a real easy act to follow. Many of the Threadgill's regulars also became regulars at the Armadillo. So soon after the Dillo closed, Eddie bought Threadgill's from his mentor and reopened it as a restaurant. It features good home cooking, just like at the Dillo, this time inspired by his mother, Beulah. Beulah Wilson actually used to work at a nursery school just down the street from Threadgill's. Beulah Wilson wasn't even really the best cook in her family. But she was the only one that had to cook for 50 kids every day at lunch. And I inherited Threadgill's signature dish is chicken fried steak, a Texas staple. That's a rough cut of beef, pounded thin, breaded, and fried. It's topped with a creamy gravy. Eddie brings me over to one of his prep cooks, Jorge. Oh man, that's my gravy man. Yeah. Oh, 40 years of doing Threadgill gravy. It should probably be... Jorge's. Jorge cuts marrow out of cow bones, mixes the roux, heats the milk, adds some spices, and mixes the two together. After staring at the gravy for what is probably too long to be socially acceptable, Eddie reads my mind and asks me if I'm hungry. 
Yes, sir, I say. We enter the restaurant and sit in Eddie's regular booth. Hanging on the wall is a picture of the outside of the Armadillo World headquarters and a portrait of its proud staff. I put down my microphone so I can enjoy the chicken fried steak. People today talk about Austin like they do Seattle or Atlanta. There are too many people. The traffic's terrible. It's so mainstream, man. Still, according to ex-Armadillo kitchen manager Bruce Walensic, you can find the Dillo's legacy everywhere in Austin today. The scene around the Armadillo is still the most active scene in Austin today. It's our live music, it's our arts, it's our culture. All of that stuff came right out of that, and it's still there. Music history professor Jason Mellard again. I consider the Armadillo World Headquarters to be... Uh, sort of the origin site, not only of Austin as a music scene, but a lot of Austin's creative economy is in some ways imagined and proved possible through the armadillo. The value of progressive country in part was it was a hook that helped get the national spotlight. And in some ways, you know, using the stereotypes of Texanness and Austin City Limits was a big kind of stage for this. Recorded live from Austin, Texas, it's Austin City Limits. Austin City Limits is a PBS show. Public television nerds might recognize the show's theme. In 73, at least according to Eddie Wilson, the Armadillo World Headquarters taped a broadcast called the Armadillo Country Music Review, which aired on local PBS station KLRN. The ratings were poor, competing against coverage of the Watergate scandal. But the PBS team got a grant to produce their own version of the show and called it Austin City Limits. The pilot showcased headliner Willie Nelson. Whiskey River, take my mind. The TV show's popularity soon ballooned, and it started booking national acts. It still does today. Recent episodes featured artists ranging from Paul Simon to Kendrick Lamar. In fact, Austin City Limits became so popular that it inspired a whole music festival. The ACL Music Festival started in 2002. As I walk around the festival, it dawns on me how ACL represents both old and new Austin. The festival itself is huge and corporate. There's the Honda stage, the American Express stage, Miller Lite stage. But on the other hand, the food options here are all local Austin institutions. Torchy's Tacos to my right and P. Terry's Burgers, Juiceland Smoothies to my left. And many people know and credit the Armadillo for making this kind of event possible. Even though Austin has grown and become more cosmopolitan and it, you know, maybe less of the weird Austin of the 70s, like the Armadillo and all that stuff, I think that place is like old Austin. This guy I meet, Patrick Randall, sums it up pretty well. We're in the beer tent, and he says the people around us are doing exactly what they used to do at the Dillo. It's people of all ethnicities, all socioeconomic groups, 
dogs, live music, beer outside on long tables with strangers. Plop, you know, pulling out a pint with a total stranger and making friends and then there you go. That's the Austin way, the armadillo way. A few weeks after ACL, another concert took place in the same park. It was hosted by All ATX, which is this nonprofit that supports local working musicians. The theme was Back to the Armadillo. Many of the old Dillo regulars came out to play, and Gary P. Nunn sang his classic London Homesick Blues, Home with the Armadillo. Austin's exploded in recent years. Some of that can be traced back to the armadillo, with ACL being just one example. But the city's also staying true to its music and culinary roots. This episode was reported by Ryan Katz. This week, we offer special thanks to the South Austin Museum of Popular Culture. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick, and our donor music is by Jazar. Managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam, and our intern is Robin Miniter. For additional resources, including photos from the Armadillo World Headquarters and a list of music from this episode, head to our website, you know the address, southernfoodways.org. While you're there, watch films, read excerpts from our journal, also called Gravy, and please consider a donation. Your gifts make Gravy and all other SFA media possible. One more thing, as you go about your day, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>